Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. You know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. For 60 years, St. Jude doctors and researchers have helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. But we need your help getting that number to 100%. And most important, your support means that families will never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, or food. Now, that peace of mind means so much. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text Bobby to 785-833. That's B-O-B-B-Y to 785 This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. All right, about to get in with Dusty Slay, episode 195, uh, comedian I like, who does live here in Nashville, so it's pretty cool. I think our third comedian to have on the show, Nikki Glazer, John Christ, Dusty Slay. Yeah. We're a regular stopping post <laughs> for the America's greatest comedians. Uh, here's Dusty on having to take his shoes off at someone's house. I went to someone's house the other day, and they asked me to take my shoes off before I came inside, and I hate that, you know? Show up at somebody's house, they're like, hey, come on in. You mind taking off your shoes? I'm like, nah, I'll just go home. (laughs) (laughs) So he's going to hop in just a second, and uh, we'll talk to him. I met him when the Badlands Sons were doing their announce, which is Brandon Ray's band. Uh, He was there. And I felt like the exchange on my end was a bit awkward because I didn't give him the correct context of the meeting. I saw him, and I was like, hey, man, I'm a big fan. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, you're coming over to the house, right? And he had no idea who I was. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I had no idea. (laughs) And uh, he was like, uh, sure. Yeah, he, didn't want to say, he didn't want to say no. And I was like, all right, man, I'll see you at my house. And I'm not sure if we ever addressed that there was a podcast or that I was Bobby Bones from you know, the podcast or the radio. I was just like, see you at the house. Come on over. And so I think when he actually got to the house, he may have been like, oh, you're that guy. I am at your house. Uh, so yeah, that was a few weeks ago and uh, he's here. We had a nice talk. We just walked downstairs and we usually come up and cut this after the show. So we'll get to that in one second. Uh, let me encourage you. You know, uh, Caroline Hobby has a new podcast. It's called Get Real, but she has one with a, um, like a hairstylist to the stars yeah. in L.A. and in Nashville. She talks about the difference and which actors and actresses she likes to work with the most. And uh, check that out, Get Real with Caroline Hobby. Velvet's Edge with Kelly Henderson. Amy has four things with Amy Brown. Um, and, you know, you can check out some of the stuff that we do here. So is there anything you'd like to say, Mike D? Uh, follow the show on Instagram. I'm putting a lot of stuff up there now, so if you hear something, you can see it too. It's the Bobbycast. The Bobbycast. Follow the Bobbycast because somebody else has Bobbycast. Yeah. What is that? What's the other Bobbycast? It's like a lock. I don't know. I think it's a guy named Robert something. Robert Castronado. Let me look it up. He just made it. I remember being a Robert and him having like a hidden post. Well, it's the. Bobby Cast. And also, if you listen to something and you like it, tag it, hit it up. Oh, it's Bobby Castro. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Man. I Bobby can't even get Bobby Bones. Still, that dude doesn't really post anything anymore either. All right, we got to go. Thank you very much. This is the newest episode, 195 with Dusty Slay. Check it. Welcome to episode 195 with Dusty Slay. This is what I like. I like walking in, just sitting down and going. I love it. Because a lot of times... Spent like 20 minutes talking about stuff. Luckily, we've already met once. Right. Outside of Brandon Ray's show. The, yeah. The Badlands Sons. I was like, yes. hey, man, you're coming over? For something, we had to delay this once, right? Do we have to do this once? I think that we almost delayed it, but then your trip got canceled. 
but I don't know. That's what happened. Yes. I got called out to LA. We're, we're, we're hiring writers for this show. And I was like, oh, I got to go. And then that's right. That's it. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. remembering. Yeah. Well, this is great. I mean, I'm happy to be here. Uh, pumped about it. I've been listening to the, the Bobby cast all day. And uh, I love cramming. It. No need to cram yeah. for this. I love it. I want to play a couple clips just so our audience, if they're not familiar, which, by the way, I think is super funny. And I'm, I'm very happy that you came over. I think Thank I told you. you that. I was like, dude, I'm such, such a fan. Now, here is, uh, this is some of your clips from your Fallon set. You cool if I play these? That'd be great. All right, here's uh, Dusty on uh, wearing trucker hats. I got this hat at Goodwill. Uh, this hat changes me. A lot of people don't know that it changes me because you haven't seen me without it on, right? But if I take this hat off, you're like, oh, man, I bet that guy likes rock music right there. <laughs> if I put this hat on, you're like, nah, he's got a rock collection. <laughs> okay, all right. We're having a good time. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If I take this hat off, you're like, man, that guy looks like the lead singer from the rock band Corn. <laughs> if I put this hat on, you're like, nah, he grows corn. If I take this hat off, you're like, man, I bet that guy smokes weed right there. Mm -hmm. If I put this hat on, you're like, nah, that guy definitely smokes weed. <laughs> um, what is it like going on a show like Fallon and having to, are you having to play at an angle? Like, do you play directly to the audience? Are you playing to a camera? Well, on Fallon, the, the cameras are right in front of you, and then the audience is a little higher. So it's the, it's the opposite of uh, a regular comedy show, where you're up higher looking down on the audience. So my, my second Fallon, where I do the stabbing joke, I normally look down at the audience. So it's a little weird to have to stab, stab up. up. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, doing that hat joke uh, on Fallon, it really ruined that for my live shows. You know, I love that joke. But now everyone knows the hair's not attached. I mean, not, not everyone, but a lot of people are like, oh, no, we saw you do that joke already. Did you feel a little like, man, I don't want to do these jokes? Because, again, it kills the joke almost. A song you can hear 100,000 times and love it even more. But a joke, it's kind of dead. Yeah, I think so. I think that if people have seen you do the same joke live, as long as you're like into it, uh, certain things change, I think they can still like it. I feel like there's something about we've seen that on TV. Like now, now you're doing a thing for us that you've already done on TV. But I love those jokes. So you see five minutes here. I do an hour uh, in a comedy club. So I'm like, it's only two minutes that you've seen. Do you still use these same jokes? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I, my Goodwill joke that's on there, I change it up a little bit. The hat jokes, I changed some examples. Uh, but yeah, I still do them. Here's Dusty. I'm taking his old TV to Goodwill. I just got a new TV uh, recently, and I uh, wanted to get rid of the old one, but I didn't want to throw it away, so I decided I would take it to Goodwill, right? And I showed up at Goodwill with this old TV, and the Goodwill guy was like, nah. <laughs> he said, we don't take TVs like that anymore. But they did take it later that night when they were closed. <laughs> um, I'm not getting rejected from Goodwill is what I'm telling you. I didn't get my receipt, though, so won't be able to claim that on my taxes. So, so that'd be a tough year. You ever do that? You drop off a bag of clothes at Goodwill, and they're like, you want a receipt for that? I'm like, nah, I don't want proof I ever own these clothes. It's like, you see what I'm wearing. Imagine what I'm giving away for free. You know what I mean? All right. Pretty exciting to walk out under the cameras and lights of a, a TV show, or more nerve-wracking? I think that it, the first time, it's so nerve-wracking behind the curtain, but when that curtain opens up and I go out, it's like all the nerves turn to adrenaline, and I'm like, let's just do this. Let's get out there. Let's do it. What was your first TV appearance? I did Jimmy Kimmel. Actually, I did a, well, I did a TV show called Laughs way back, but I don't know if that counts. It was in certain markets. My first big thing- <laughs> Like was, a regional show? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, it was on Fox, but I never could find it anywhere. There's a little clip. It's still on YouTube. It's, uh, it's pretty bad. I, I had shaved the sides of my mustache so that my mustache didn't connect to my beard. I don't know why I did that, but I looked weird. It had rained. It was pre-hat, so I had my hair kind of slicked back. Anyway, Jimmy Kimmel was the first, and I did that in 2000. Uh, I did it in 2017. It aired first week of 2018. And... I used all my trailer park jokes, which I love, but I wasn't ready. I, I mean, I was ready to do it, but I, I didn't, I don't know. I don't think I had proper preparation. For the show? Or yeah, for the show, I didn't, 
I just didn't know what it would be like, right? I thought, hey, there'll be a warm-up comic. Maybe there'll be other comics. So I'll be able to roll right in on a hot crowd. But with Jimmy Kimmel, they have, uh, they have a really nice room set up for you to do comedy. But they watch all these celebrities, and then the whole audience stands up, moves to a different room. Oh, they do. Just to sit down and watch comedy. So they were practically a cold crowd again. And here I am coming out with jokes that I've never opened with. So now when I'm doing a late night, I just open with those jokes for, you know, for weeks leading up to it. They move the crowd over. Yeah, and half the audience is sitting down, half are standing. It's a great room, but you need like a warm-up. Like, so my whole set, I'm like, the first half of my set is getting the audience into what I'm doing. Second half, great. Are you able to think and actually slow down while you're doing television, or is it just like this the whole time, like in your head, like spinning? Jimmy Kimmel, it was for sure spinning. I, I did, I did, I, they asked me what, did I want to do it for the, the crew before, before the tape? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to practice. And I did five minutes in about three minutes. <laughs> I missed jokes. I was stumbling. I was like, I don't know what's happening. I went back to my room, rehearsed it a bunch. I mean, it, it's jokes I told a million times, but now I'm like on TV thinking that the camera guy's going to go, I don't know why you picked this guy. And then, uh, but yeah, it was great. How legit is the trailer park stuff in your act? Uh, it's almost a hundred percent true. I mean, I grew up, uh, my parents got divorced when I was two. I moved to uh, a trailer park with my mom in Alabama and I lived there till I was 14. And then I moved back into a trailer. I bought the same trailer when I was 18 for a thousand bucks and lived there for about two years. So you're living in a trailer park. Did you think that that would just be your home or at least, or, cause I'm from the same type of upbringing and no one really either, you know, in my hometown or you know, when I lived in the trailer park, no one really leaves. And so you're just not taught there are options. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I thought I would always live in a trailer, but I graduated high school. I had no idea what to do. I was working at Western Sizzlin. Uh, what did you want to do at 17 when they said, what are you going to do? What did you think you wanted to do? I had no idea. I never had any. My dad, uh, when I was a kid, his his brother used to be a chiropractor, and my dad really wanted me to be a chiropractor, right? So I didn't even know what it was, but I have paperwork at home from elementary school where I wrote cowpractor, like C-O-W, <laughs> practor. I was like, that's what I want to be. I didn't even know what it was. So I never had a plan. I never had any idea what I wanted to do. I, so I was just doing jobs. I mean, I, I waited tables. I joined the Army. You and, did. And then I got arrested before I got in. And uh, so my court date came after my ship off date. So I, I didn't go. And uh, so, so I was. Uh, let's, uh, hold on a second. So you, at what point in your life do you go, all right, my options are hang around here or join the army? At what age? Is that 17 or before graduate high school? After when you, have, you feel like you have no options? It was, I was 18 and I was working at Western Sizzlin, waiting table. And I don't know if people know what that is. Like a golden corral without like a, all the class. Yeah. You know, like a silver corral. That's what I say. And it's, uh, but so I'm, I'm working in there and this older guy comes in and he had been coming in all week. He's a construction guy. And he starts telling me about how he joined the army and how great it was and how he went all over the country, all over the world. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So I left work that day and went to the recruiter's office. You went, you left Sizzler to go to the recruiter. Yeah. And they said, and what did you look like then? Uh, I had shaved head. I mean, I okay. think I was ready. I was it wasn't skinny. the long hair. It wasn't the kind of the look now. No, no glasses, no beard. I mean, I was ready. I was a prime uh, young army cadet. You know, I was ready to go. And but I was, you know, I was, you know, I was smoking a bit of weed back then. And uh, so the recruiters tried to work with me to help me get clean. You know, they were like, "All right, we're going to figure out how to get you clean." So we went through all that, and then I did the. Um, what do you call it? The, I don't know, a physical. I did the physical where you walk in and you, you know, you get in your underwear and you do like a duck walk and they do all kind of tests on you. And then you do a drug test where you're, you know, you know, you're at a urinal and then there's a guy sitting right next to you looking at you. Like looking at your penis. Right. To make sure it's not a fake penis because you can do that. Right. Or you can pour someone else's pee right. into it, right? And I'm joining the army hoping that's not the job I get. And... Uh, <laughs> And then, so then everything goes well. I come home, my recruiter goes, he says, uh, he says, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I know you like to smoke weed. And when you get back in, when you, when you, you're going to get shipped off in a month. So when you go, they're going to drug test you again. So if you want to smoke, tonight's the night. That night I got arrested for alcohol and weed. 
Because you went as hard as they thought you might. I really didn't, actually. I was just riding around with a friend. I was, I was at a party. I left the party. I hadn't been drinking. I don't even think I did any. I mean, I was ready. I was committed. I was like, I want to join the Army. Let's do this. And on my way out, a friend goes, hey, I got these two beers. Uh, do you want them? And they were unopened. So all we had to do was not open the beers. And we get in the car. We're going to meet these girls that live in a trailer park. And, you know, I thought, hey, let's be cool, right? Let's open these. Let's be drinking when we get there because that's what trailer park girls are into, you know, knowing they're going to have to take you to a couple of court dates. And so we pull up. Well, we're on our way, and we get pulled over. And then I, I didn't know what to do, so I stuffed the beer under the seat. And so obviously it spills out. My buddy stuffs his weed in the beer bottle, so now it's mine. So I got arrested for consumption of alcohol and possession of marijuana. It didn't even go that hard. No. I was ready. I was like, I was ready. I was like, let's do it. Do you have to call your recruiter that said, hey, if you're going to go hard, go hard tonight? And be like, well, I went hard. I didn't even go that hard, and I got busted. Yeah. Well, I went in uh, on Monday and told them, and uh, they really tried to get me out of it, tried to work around it. I was so happy. At that point, I was like, you know what? I don't want to go now. <laughs> and I didn't know. I was so confused. I was like, I, all I wanted to do was travel around a bit. But this was August 2001, so I would have been in the arm in boot camp when September 11th happened. So I'm pumped. I'm pumped I didn't go. Were you the funny guy at the restaurant? Well, the restaurant was hard because when I worked there at, at Western Citizen, I was like the only male and I was way younger. I was like, I was 18 and everybody else was 40, you know? So, I mean, I had some good times. I mean, I had some funny stuff, but the, the, I don't know if the older women really liked me that much. I think I was probably a punk kid. You weren't the funny waiter? No, I worked later at a restaurant called Hyman's in Charleston, South Carolina. It's called what? It's called Hyman's. Excuse me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hyman's Seafood, which is actually, it's located on the same block as a restaurant called Sticky Fingers. <laughs> and there used to be another uh, store there called Loose Lucy's, all right there on the same block. And uh, So the red light district of South Carolina. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and I had a, I, I, people used to ask me, they would be like, uh, are you one of the Hyman's? Because it's owned by a family with the last name Hyman. They would say, are you one of the Hyman's? And I'm like, yeah, because they named me Dusty Hyman. You know, I'm the oldest one. And uh, so, you know, I worked, at, I worked at that restaurant. And that was funny then. I was having a good time. But I was also a big drinker. But did you ever think that, that there could be, you could monetize your creativity? Like, when did that actually become a thing where you go, maybe it ain't a lot of money, but I can actually do this and maybe pay the car insurance? Well, I think it's like, it is that trailer park mentality, right? Where you're like, ah, you know, I like comedy. I'm funny, but I'm not going to be a comedian. I mean, let's be realistic. I'm not going to move to New York. I'm not going to move to LA. I'm not going to be a comic. But I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and I, uh, I went with a friend. We moved there together. He took his girlfriend, and then him and his girlfriend went off and uh, you know, did their own thing. And I'm, So I'm alone. So I ended up taking this improv class, improv comedy class. Had no idea what it was. Started taking it. A buddy of mine was like, hey, you should do some stand-up, do that country character that you do. And uh, I was countryer back then. I'm like, oh, yeah, character. So I did, uh, in 2004, I did my first stand-up set. I don't say that I started then because I, I did it a little bit and then quit. But I wore overalls, no shoes, came out. It went pretty well, but I was just doing real kind of hack jokes, you know. I had a joke that I was doing, like, I would say my wife. I don't know if I said wife or girlfriend. Obviously not married, but I was like, uh, my girlfriend so ugly. I take her with me everywhere I go. Oh, I say, my, I take my girlfriend with me everywhere I go. She's so ugly. I don't want to have to kiss her goodbye. Right? You know, old <laughs> hack jokes like that. But it went pretty well. I could sell it, and then I was like, "That's great." So then I start keep doing it, and then I start bombing, and then I'm getting drunk all the time and bombing, and I'm like, "I gotta quit." So I quit. Uh, I quit by 2005. I guess when you take the improv class, though, were you that good that you thought I should expand? No, I got talked into it. I thought I was funny, but I got talked into it. But were you good at improv? I was funny yeah. at improv. I don't know that I was good. You know, I think there is a difference in being good at improv and being funny. I have some teachers. They were, they were funny, but they were so good at creating a scene and just creating this world that obviously didn't exist, but you wouldn't know it if you were just listening to them. Very funny. Uh, I could always be funny, but I, don't, I couldn't really set the scene. So you hop on stage as a character from Hee Haw, basically. Yes. And it's going all right. Yes. Until it doesn't go all right anymore. 
Yeah, you know, I, then I start, you know, I start trying to write new jokes. And every joke, I'm just, I, I just, in my brain, I don't even know how to write jokes. I'm just going to the hackiest thing. And anytime I even try to tell stories about my life, it's just like, it's all not funny. So I, I'm like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. So I quit for about three years. I lived on the beach. I was just drinking and partying. And I lived on Folly Beach. And it was a great time, wonderful time. But then in 2008, same friend uh, invited me out to do comedy again. And I wrote this bit that I have on, on one of my albums called The Letters of the Alphabet or The Alphabet Story. I don't know what it's called, but it's about the alphabet. Really weird, obscure kind of bit. Uh, and it went great. And it, and it fueled me. I had this, I had this feeling when I left this, uh, it's, and I still get it to this day. I mean, especially after that Tonight Show appearance, it, it all comes back. After doing the Grand Old Opry, it's there. It's just like a, a buzz that you can't get with anything else. And I was like, I want this all the time. So then I, then I, you know, I had a little more experience and I started being able to write actual jokes. Do you feel that coming from very little was actually an advantage when you get into a field that makes very little at the very beginning? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I know what it's like to not really have stuff and I, and I don't care. You know, it's like, I think success makes me happy in a way of achievement but all the other stuff, I mean, it's nice. I mean, I bought a car this year. wasn't a big deal. I wasn't stressed about it. That's nice. I've been in a play. The car before that I bought, the first tank of gas I put in, I was like, oh, no. I didn't have a car for two years. I rode a bike. And then uh, so when I put my first tank of gas in, I was like, oh, man, 40 bucks every time. That's what we're going to be doing now. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm not rich, but uh, I don't have the same problems that I used to have. Yeah, for me, that was the whole deal was I was okay with being broke because I grew up broke. Like it, I was able to chase a profession and not have a lot because it didn't give a lot. And I was okay with that because if you don't have a lot, you don't know. Right. Is It was just easier for me to, to really dig in because I was good at being poor. Right. It's functioning. Yeah, I think there's a freedom in being poor, right? I, and I always thought it was a bad, I always thought it was such a bad thing for a while. I was like, woe is me until I realized it was like, I was like 28 or 29 years old. And I'm like, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was I came from nothing because I had nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, there's such a freedom in it where it's like you don't really have to answer to anyone because there's nothing you can lose. But at the same time, there is those, you know, the same, you know, I remember, you know, that whole joke of, you know, just that thing of what would you do for a million dollars, right? I remember sitting around with some friends just talking about some things. And my one friend was like, oh, I would never do any of those things. And I'm like, and I had a boss at the time that was really hard on me that I just, I couldn't stand the guy. And I thought, you know what? If that meant never having to take anything from that guy again, I'll give it up. I'd do that, whatever it is for a million dollars, you know? But now that I'm at a a different place where I have happiness in my job, I'm like, no, I don't even, I don't even want a million dollars. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or you like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, 
Seuss Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about the incredible work that's being done by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and to ask you today to join me in becoming a partner in hope. When you make a donation to St. Jude, you're helping an organization that has helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. And I can tell you from personal experience, that number and the hope that it brings is invaluable. Families do not have to worry about a thing. Treatment is covered, travel, housing, food. And when you're a family that's going through this, like imagine you're a parent, your kid gets cancer. You need to focus on that child. You don't need to be worrying about other things. And financial stuff can get really stressful. St. Jude covers it. Your support means families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment. And when you sign up for just $19 a month, you're going to get the new This Shirt Saves Lives tee. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text Bobby to 785-833. That's B-O-B-B-Y to 785-833. Breakdown, you talk about writing a joke and you went from trying to write hacky stuff, in your opinion, hacky stuff, to you know things that fulfill you a little more. I think there's a real insight to how people write their own jokes. Like Your joke writing process is what? Well, I think, uh, I think it changes all the time. I mean, now it's a little different. I mean, something can just happen to me. Uh, some interaction can happen and it, and it just all becomes... Uh, telling that funny interaction in a way that people will be able to understand and that people will be able to get and it and it can be just changing little things you know re- recently i got to open for the band alabama in iowa and i'm a huge fan of alabama so after my set i went out into the audience to watch i mean i had never seen them live it's amazing to me and this lady comes up to me and she goes have you ever milked a cow and i said no and she said do you want to and i said no and then she said, my husband's getting wild tonight, and I need somebody to help me milk the cows. Right? And I wasn't sure if she meant sex, but <laughs> I said no, and I regret it. And I was back in my hotel later, and I was like, I could be milking some cows right now. But just, uh, I was just watching a set that I did about two weeks ago, and I, I was doing that exact same story, but it was just small little things in there that I wasn't saying, that it just comes through repetition. The more I say it, the more I realize, okay, they laughed at this, Let's let's try that. It's just like a repeat of, uh, have you know? It's like, uh, have you ever milked a cow? No. Do you want to? No. Like that always gets a laugh from people now. But what I would say before, have you ever milked a cow? I'd be like, you know, I grew up on a farm, but I never milked a cow. And then she was like, do you want to? And I was like, well, no. And that's not funny. But somehow the no, no is funny. And I would say innuendo instead of actually saying the word sex, which made it funnier. I'm I'm not a dirty comic. I, you know, I don't mind getting a little edgy, but I don't want to go dirty, you know? So for me, even saying the word sex is a little dirtier than I go, but I, you know, but it's like some of my earlier jokes, it was like, all right, let's, let's think of this story. One of my first ones I wrote was about getting pulled over, uh, that time me and my friend, you know, was drinking and it's like, it, had, it, it felt like it had to be this big thing. It had to be this big thing that happened. I went to jail. I got arrested. And that's a story worth telling. Whereas the lady saying, do you want to milk some cows? Not that big of a deal. But it's all about the wording. I don't know if that answers the question. But it's like uh, this weekend, I, got, I, got in, I was at this elevator. And we were on the fourth floor. There was nowhere to go up. This is the tallest you could get. We both got in the elevator. He was with uh, his girlfriend. And he was like, what floor? I said, one. So we hit one, he hit two. And he goes, you're going down, we're going up. I was like, okay. And it was so weird, I just let it pass, right? <laughs> but then the, it, he said, but we'll just ride with you anyway. And I was like, okay. And then it opens it too, and he goes, well, I guess we stole it from you. And I'm like, what floor did you think we were on? You know, we were on the one and a half floor? <laughs> but it's things like that, that happens to me. And then I just... Uh, then I just figure out the right wording. And then oftentimes it's like, 
you know, I've heard it said, you don't let facts ruin a good story, right? So if it's not funny, then you make up a little something. And it's repetition and missing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, f- I, I, I listened to your uh, podcast with John Chris today, and I just heard you talk about that, that so much of it is about failure. And 100%. It's like, you fa- I fail all the time at comedy, and it is me going back in and saying, oh, I'm going to keep trying that, or I'm going to keep doing that, that makes me successful. Because I get better at it. I figure out how to do it. When you're in South Carolina and you go, okay, I'm going to do this, you get an old beater car to drive around all around the country or what? Well, I bought a, uh, I ended up, I saved, I, what, I, what happened to me was I used to sell pesticides for a living. So I was driving everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I was a, <laughs> yeah, I sold pesticides to Lowe's and Home Depot. And uh, so I was driving. Wholesale. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow, that's hardcore. You got in deep. Well, I was dri- yeah, I would drive to the store and talk, to- I'd build displays and, and, and talk to them about, you know, doing this and that, normally getting rejected all the time. And that, that's interesting to me because that was a job I wasn't interested in. So the rejection was harder for me because it wasn't something I was willing to fight for. But sending avails to a comedy club every month being like, will you book me, wasn't that big of a deal to me because I'm like, I want to get booked here. If, if they don't build an extra pesticide display for me, I don't really care but I want to work this club. So uh, I, had, I had that job and I wrecked a few times and I, I had a lot of speeding tickets. So my insurance was really expensive and I couldn't figure out how to quit the job uh, because I was like, I got to pay for this car and I have really expensive insurance. So the, the trade-off was I quit drinking, I quit smoking cigarettes. So that was a huge expense out of my life. And then I was like, if I sell the car, I don't even need the job. So that's what I did. I sold the car quit drinking, quit smoking cigarettes, just went back to very basics of life, had a bike, and then I just saved up money. So in 2014, when I bought a car, I bought a Volvo, but I bought used Volvo, 100,000 miles, and I put an extra 217,000 miles on the car. So I put 317 on it, and the day I traded it in, uh, I pulled in and my car is just leaking all this stuff out of the bottom, and I was like, now's time. And and what do they give you for a trade-in for a 300,000-mile Volvo. Uh, basically, they they gave me like, uh, you know, whatever I would have tried to negotiate. I'm no negotiator, right? So I was like, hey, how about the car? You knock off a thousand bucks. They were like, okay, perfect. Which they'd have probably knocked off anyway, but they were just like, all right, let's just get yes, this going. Yeah, exactly. You um, you ever play a room that's so not full that it's uncomfortable? Oh, so many times. I actually. After I did Jimmy Kimmel, I thought my whole life was going to change, right? I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be selling out every room I do now. So I had these credits. You know, I did Last Comic Standing in 2015. I didn't make it very far, but enough, far enough to use it as a credit. So people would bring me up to stage as the headliner. There would be 12 people in the audience, and they're like, you've seen him on Last Comic Standing. You've seen him on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Here he is, Dusty Slay. So I would come up, and I would go, yes, I'm very famous, and that's what I would do all the time to kind of break that tension. I would go, I'm very famous, very rich. And it, it would break the tension. And I think working those small rooms like that really helped me. Working small rooms, working big rooms. I mean, it all helps you to shape you to be the best comic you can be. Because, uh, you know, a Saturday night early show at Zany's, 300 people in the room, uh, you got to be not doing well to not have a good show, you know? But 12 people, you're like, that's hard. It's hard to get in there and connect with them because that audience is probably thinking, well, this is a bad show. We shouldn't have came to see this guy. And with few people, there's not much to feed off of with each other. Right. Like bigger rooms, it, listen, if you can get them, they're easier to, to, to have them kind of reproduce laughter within themselves. Yes. Like they want to laugh and that many people that want to laugh will kind of spread it around. Something like a virus yeah. in the room. Um, Absolutely. And, and something about the room being dark or being hidden, uh, you can laugh. Like if there's 12 people in the room, it's well lit. You <laughs> they're up want, front. Yeah. They're all up front where the lighting of the stage is. Yeah, you don't want to be the one guy laughing. Uh, one of my friends is a comedian, uh, Nikki Glazer, and she talks about going on uh, Jay Leno back in the day. Going, My life's changed. I'm a, after the show, boom, and nothing. Oh, yeah. She goes to the subway. It's like, maybe you saw me on, uh, they're like, what, what? You want pickles? Like, what? Oh, yeah. I know. I know. That's the weirdest thing. It's like if somebody is like, I've seen you somewhere. And I'm like, uh, Jimmy Kimmel. And they're like, no, I, I think you used to work at a Lowe's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That's probably it. You know? 
But the Tonight Show, the first time, I mean, that show, that set went really well. That set went the way that I wanted it to go. And that essentially changed my life. I mean, it was a chain of events that happened. But yeah, I mean, that changed my whole career. How'd you get on that show? What chain of events are you referring to? Well, I did, in 2017, I did the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland, Oregon. And through that, I got an audition for Just for Laughs, uh, the comedy the comedy festival in Montreal. And uh, they wanted me to do Unwrapped, but I had a manager at the time. So I couldn't do Unwrapped. So they were like, all right, you can audition for Rep. They have those two showcases. And so I did that showcase. I didn't get it, but the booker for Jimmy Kimmel was there. So that's how I got that booking. But I, I, I got to meet Jeff Singer from JFL. So then in 2018, I do the Laughing Skull Festival in Atlanta. And Jeff Singer is there and Michael Cox, who books The Tonight Show, both there. I had a killer set. They both saw it. And Jeff Singer starts talking to me again and, you know, kind of just, you know, talking to me a bit. And, and I get the impression that uh, if I were you know, unrepped that uh, I might be able to get JFL unrepped. And, um, Which is just for laughs. Right. JFL, right, yes. And, and then Michael Cox talked to me, and he's like, I'd love to have you on the show. Uh, why don't you send me a tape? So I start sending tapes back and forth with him. I go through th- some things. I, I come out unrepped. I, 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 I dropped the management that I had. I thought, you know what? It's not going to hurt me. I got Jimmy Kimmel on my own. It's not going to hurt me to be without a manager. Even if nothing happens, I'll be fine. And so, you know, once I let Jeff Singer know that I was officially unrepped, you know, a few weeks went by and I, I ended up getting JFL, uh, which was great. I got Just for Laughs, unrepped, new faces, so pumped. And, you know, I was still communicating with Michael Cox a little bit, but it had kind of died off. And then my set at JFL went so well. It was like, I mean, it was all that I wanted it to be. I was like, I'm in a uh, I, I'm worried that I'm going to be in Montreal and everybody speaks French. No one's going to get my jokes. No one's going to know what the Home Depot is. And it just crushed. I'm doing a wave joke. I'm getting applause breaks for waving at people. And it's amazing. And then Michael Cox calls me like two days later, says, you want to do the Tonight Show in two weeks? And I said, yes. And uh, so we got a set together. And I, two weeks later, I'm on the Tonight Show. After that show finished, you feel like it was a little different than when you went off on Kimmel? Yeah, I felt great on both. But I have a bunch of friends that live in New York. So after, after I did it, they came. And after I did it, we all went to a bar. We all went to a cigar shop and then out to a bar and watched me on The Tonight Show. A lot of friends that I started with in Charleston, we watched me on The Tonight Show. And, it just, and then my phone just blew up like never before. I was hearing from family members and friends and it was amazing. And uh, yeah, I couldn't sleep. I only, I only had like four hours till I had to be on a plane anyway, but... I couldn't sleep. I just, I felt amazing. There's a picture of you. It was on your Instagram of you, Leno, Foxworthy, uh, the Tennessee. The Tennessee oh, yeah, the Tennessee, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're all, the, is that the Opry? Yes. So what was behind that picture? What's the story there? Well, I got, I just got invited uh, to see, I mean, I'm a huge Jeff Foxworthy fan. Always have been. When I was in middle school. I was living in a trailer park when his You Might Be a Redneck came out. And I was like, oh, this guy is speaking to me. Like he had us walking around school saying you too and I, like we weren't already saying it, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, his agent, I had met his agent at the Nashville Comedy Festival. And we, we talked with, with him and my manager. And uh, yeah, he invited me just to the opera to see that. And I was like, that's amazing. And then I get there and Nate had just had his Netflix special come out. So they were very interested in Nate. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I ended up getting to talk to Jeff Foxworthy quite a bit. And I did an interview with him earlier this year. It hasn't come out, but, it'll, you know, and uh, just very exciting for me. I mean, I've always been a big fan. So how is it with you and Nate? You guys both live here-ish? Nate was already... Uh, popular before I moved here. I moved here in 2014. The first open mic I did, Nate was there, and I was already a fan of him. Uh, I was listening to his first album a lot. And yeah, I mean, Nate's been a lot of help to me. Nate, we don't hang out a ton, but he's such a great dude. And any, Nate seems to pop up anytime there is a uh, important decision for me to make. And he just, and he's there, uh, good advice. It's like, he's a step ahead of me always. Well, I hope, I hope that I'm always kind of following behind what Nate does. But uh yeah, and uh, so he's like always like I've been there, done that. Uh, so he's always a lot of help. What's the, with the the show? Did, did you uh, are you are you taking a show like a developing a show? 
Well, I sold a development deal to ABC last year about growing up in a trailer park, and uh, that's a uh, and my first outing. I had never been to ABC Studios, but they saw me at JFL too, and they liked it. One of the guys from JFL was like, "Hey, I grew up like that too," or one of the guys from ABC, and it's it's awesome. And so we sold this. I don't think it's going to get made, but I got a couple other things in the works right now. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. You sound like me when I talk about these shows. I'm like, no show ever makes it. That's what I say. No show ever makes it. Occasionally one will creep through, but I'm just going to keep shooting shots until one does. Yeah. It's funny you say that. So you don't think that'll get made because why? The, you don't think the passion's behind it right now, but behind the right, with the right people? Well, I, well, I think a lot of things happen. Like one thing happened, the, like the head of ABC or whatever that department left mid production of my, or mid script writing but it was like you know i'd never been through this before so i'm paired up with a writer we would write a little something and then we would get notes and they would go we love it we love it change this change this and we go okay great and then we would change those things have another call and they would be like oh we love it maybe change this maybe change that and then we'd have another we love it and then one day i'm at a uh, a longhorn steakhouse in erie pennsylvania about to eat a steak and i get a call and they're like okay, we're not going to do it. But they didn't say the project is dead. They said, you know, we're not going to go this round. We're going to try to sell it to some other people. I just think that's why I think it's not going to happen. But I have some other ideas. I got, I got a couple of things that I'm working on, nothing official yet, but uh, it seems really good. Potentially a cartoon, uh, which I would be, I would love that. Are you always writing? Yeah, I write all the time. I mean, I'm right. You know, I'm writing. I, I I like to do you know YouTube videos, my my top five country songs. So I was really interested in your podcast about uh, the uh, songs that people think mean something that means something else. Oh yeah, I was I was pretty disappointed to find out that Phil Collins it doesn't mean anything. It means nothing in I the air tonight. Like, it means nothing. I wonder if he just was like, you know what? I'm tired of people. I'm just gonna <laughs> say it means nothing. I'm tired of telling the story about the guy watching the guy drown. It bums me out. Oh man, I was living in a trailer park for the second time, and me and some friends went to Atlanta, and we're at a Hard Rock Cafe. This is in the when you know Hard Rock Cafe is still doing well here, but uh, it used to be like huge. Everybody had those shirts, and uh, this guy in the kitchen as that big drum solo comes he bangs on the side of the stove or whatever and i was like it's just the coolest memory for me i was like that's amazing i always love that song anyway but uh uh what did we say what what made me say that? oh oh writing so i write these episodes out for my for my youtube and i've been right i've been doing a whole series on my podcast about how to become a comic from you know you're sitting on the couch basically to becoming a headliner and so I've been writing those out, and now I'm writing, uh, writing a couple of different scripts, uh, and I'm writing jokes all the time. So I, I, feel, I feel more creative than ever, I'm, and I'm just uh, I'm so happy to be doing what I'm doing. And I'm actually uh, finally making money, Yeah, right. which is nice too, because I've been doing a lot of these shows for 12 people, no real money, uh, driving for eight hours to get there. I was watching um, on Netflix, they had a special. Not a, not a Netflix special, but they had a show. I'm trying to remember what it was, where they would drive all the way across the country and it would show all these comics. Like, Mike, you remember that special? Where they would drive all the way across the country to do 15 minutes and make no money. It was like a documentary on struggling comics. It's been a while. Have you seen that one? Oh, I haven't. I'd love Have to see that. you lived that one? Oh, I've lived that one for sure. But the, the great thing for me is, is I lived in Charleston for six years uh, and I got to get all those kinks of not being a good comic out of me before anybody in a club ever saw me. And now I'm like, you know, I, I, I had a pretty high success rate where I could go to a club. I say, hey, uh, let me come up there. Let me do five minutes. Once you see me, you'll book me. And only one club did I not do that, do well at. And it was a club I showed up. There's four people in the audience for five minutes. I never made them crack a smile. And I was like, all right, well, I still want to get booked here, but I can see why you wouldn't want to. So you're writing a lot of stuff. Do you ever write for other comics? Well, I have this real thing. My wife says that, that I think that no one likes my ideas, but I always, uh, that's why stand-up has always worked so well for me. I don't have to run my idea by anybody. I don't have to have anybody think it's funny. I just go try it. And then if it's not funny, I adjust. I make it funny. But I try to write jokes for people. They don't think it's funny. They won't try it. <laughs> I've had so many comics for a long time. My, my, my real passion was to try to take a terrible comic that I saw at an open mic and make them funny. All I wanted them to do was have one five-minute set. But all would end up happening was they would do my joke one time. It would get better laughs than any other joke they ever did. 
And then they would defer back to their old jokes. And then they would just stop telling the joke. And then they would resent me. Happened every time. I don't know why. Most comics I tried to make funny end up hating me. That's, so. that's a funny docuseries. Even yeah. on YouTube, find somebody that sucks and they're a part of it. And you're right and develop them as a comedian and it watches them grow. Yeah. But you got to find someone that's okay with them being the sucky comic right. and then using your material. I mean, that's, that's my passion. My passion is to make bad comics good at comedy. I was reading your uh, Twitter. This is your most retweeted tweet. Do you know it? Uh, about people saying I'm not country as they thought I'd be. Yeah, this is what you wrote. Somebody told me tonight that I wasn't as country as they thought I'd be. I felt birth a cow with my hands. I have a bale day and I know how to drive a tractor. I don't know how country they thought I'd be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's the accent, right? I mean, I've just lived all over. My wife's Canadian. We're, we're, we're ruining each other's accents. I'm becoming <laughs> more Canadian. She's becoming more Southern. Like, and I don't know. I mean, it's just not there. I don't say y'all a lot. I used to, uh, but I don't know what's happening. Words are, my wife is a big reader and she's always trying to teach me words. And I'm like, I wish that I was more Southern, right? More, I had more of a Southern accent, but I don't know. I'm not going to fake it. You know, it comes out sometimes, but yeah, I mean, my, my parents got divorced when I was two and my, I always say there was a custody battle. My mom lost. So I had to go live with her. And, uh, but, uh, she lived in a trailer park. My dad still lives on a farm. So I've done all the farming things. I mean, I've drove, I've, I've raked hay on one tractor while my dad's on the other tractor, bailing hay, yelling at me from across the field. And I know he's mad by the way he's waving his hands. Uh, I don't know what I've done, but once we get together, I'll be in trouble. <laughs> and I bailed hay. I picked up little square bales. I had to birth a cow. I had to stick my arm inside of a cow and reach for things. <laughs> You know, and try to pull another cow that's, out of it. That, that's country. Yeah. You look country. Yeah. Yeah. But people, they just, I don't know what they think I'm going to do. You, uh, you've been, I guess, a full-time comic since what, 14, 2014? Yeah, 2014. I went back to the pesticide job for about four months, and then it was a seasonal job. And I said, when this ends, I'm going full-time. And when did you meet your wife? I met her in 2013 in New York City. So um, she's not someone that saw you just killing it at comedy and been like, that's my dude. Well, we were doing open mics in New York. She does comedy too. Oh, really? Yeah, she's kind of semi-retired now. The more money I make, the less, the more she hates traveling, you know? And, uh, but she, uh, we met, we were both doing open mics. I was visiting from Charleston. She was visiting from Canada and I was doing pretty well. But no, I mean, by the time she saw me again in 2015, I think, uh, I was doing much better. You're Mount Rushmore of funny people. Now, not comics. It can be comics if you want, but you're Mount Rushmore of funny people. Oh, well, I would say John Candy would go there first. If we're not talking stand-up comics. They don't have to be stand-up comics. John Candy, Uncle Buck is like the greatest movie to me. I mean, you know, it's a little cheesy. It's a John Hughes film, but I love John Candy. I, I'm so sad that he died because I like what he does. I would say Jeff Foxworthy definitely goes up there for me, is a comic. Uh, Steve Martin, uh, I love the Let's Get Small album. Uh, I just tore that album up. I loved it, loved it. And I think if I had to put uh, a fourth person and it could be any funny person, i go David Spade. Uh, Joe Dirt does it for me. Yeah, I, we were doing this uh, backstage at one of my shows this past week, and Steve Martin is on mine too, for just simply from, uh, we, we were talking about, because I did this bit, which it only turned out to be only okay. I hadn't, I'd never done it before. And so I'm standing up and I've got my guitar and I, I was like, oh, I'm going to sing you a song. It's a real emotional song. And these lyrics really mean a lot to me. And they, they bring out a stool and then I sit down on the stool, but the mic is still at standing distance and I'm singing the song with no microphone, right? So I'm just singing it forward and people can't hear me because the microphone's, and it's such a Steve Martin inspired oh, idea. Yeah. So I just sit on the stool and I'm like, but I'm playing the gar guitar solo. You can't hear anything I'm saying after yes. I set it up. And I, I finished and I was like, Oh, that's, that's completely Steve Martin influence. Every part of that bit was me watching Steve Martin do stadium shows with a dime going, I'm now going to do a magic trick where people are up in section G not seeing the dime, but that was part of the, the humor. Right. Um, so uh, Steve Martin's on, we say Steve Martin, and I've read Born Standing Up like 10 times. Oh, yeah. Well, he's so great. I mean, the Let's Get Small album, I always wish that I could see that because I, could, I can't find anything on it. I've only heard the audio, but it's like there's some physical things he's doing that I can only imagine. Because the laughter yeah. that's happening. 
I just love, he's, he's about 10 minutes in and he goes, all right, let's get started. I, I've been stalling. I've been waiting for the drugs to kick in. And uh, it's just, I, I do that sometimes. If my show's not going well after a little while, I'll go, all right, let's get started. Let's get into it. And he's so good. Instead of a last meal, you're given a last song, right? It's, it's, it's the one that you go out on. What oh, is it? Man, the last song. Oh, oh wow. Uh, you know what? Uh, I don't want to be too stereotypical of my own self here, but I might go like a Hank Jr. Country Boy Can't Survive. I always like that song. And I don't listen to it that much anymore because I burned it up. But I don't know. I always loved it. And what a good way to go out. You're about to die. Gosh, I love it. Were you a Hank Jr. fan as a kid? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still am. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I always like to separate people from, uh, from music. I mean, I don't know much about him personally, but sometimes I hear stuff about him, and I'm like, he doesn't seem like a nice guy. <laughs> but I love his music. I love it. Yeah, there are a lot of those. He has... That you got to separate from. The thing about him is he has such a big catalog that outside of the popular songs that everybody knows, he has, he has so many great songs. I, I just keep... I, thanks to Spotify, I just, I just tear them up. What is the dumbest thing that you hear people say about your profession? Oh, well, oh, man. Well, I can tell you, this, this was said to a friend of mine, and uh, I don't... I don't uh, he said... Uh, he, this is my friend Aaron Weber. He opens for John Chris quite a bit, and he was on the. And the guy was like, "When are you guys going to be coming back here?" And he was like, "I don't know. You know, we got to get some. You know, we got to write some new jokes and stuff like that." And he goes, "Oh, don't tell me that's scripted." <laughs> he thinks you're up just ad libbing. Yeah, the I mean, just stuff like that where people want you to tell jokes. Just like, hey, tell me a joke. It's like, you know, the, there's a whole thing that goes into it. There's a stage. There's lighting. There's seats. There's an audience. You're in a setting. I mean, all these jokes are funnier when I'm in that environment. For me to just tell you that on the street, all, all that's going to happen is I'm going to tell you the joke. You're not going to think it's that funny. And then you're going to go, that guy's not funny. Do you have people, because this happens with me a bit, where they're like, hey, will you come do jokes like tomorrow night? And we got this event. Specific jokes about this event. Because they just think you can just write oh, yeah. jokes like this. And they also don't understand that you almost, you have to test them somewhere to really feel confident about them. Oh yeah. Otherwise you're just blindly swinging. Yeah, I mean, I've tried to do that for events. Like, I'll be doing an event. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try to write some jokes just for the event. And then I go out and do them. And sometimes they bomb. And I'm like, oh, I've just started this whole set by bombing when I could have just went with jokes that I know are good. You know, and it's like, but I, I think the more that you do comedy, the more you can, like, I just did uh, a week of shows for the company Sheets. Uh, the, the, it's, like a, it's like a gas station restaurant type thing. I know what we travel around. You can uh, order food at the gas station at 2 a.m. Oh, like, yeah. You get like a taco and, uh, from the little screen. Yeah, and, it, and it's great. And it's like I did three shows, one Monday, one Wednesday, one Friday. And by Friday, I had my sheets jokes down. Like they were, I didn't have many, but I had them down. Mo Monday, they were shaky. They didn't work. Friday, they were great because it's my third time saying them, you know? Do you, uh, you, you still drink? I don't drink. I haven't drank since 2014. Because? Uh, well, I, you know, I never like the expression once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, because I feel like if I'm not drinking, I'm not an alcoholic, right? Uh, I only have a problem if I start drinking again. But I'd like to party. I mean, there was no sad story for me. I'd like partying. And when I get a little alcohol in my system, I'm ready to party. And I don't stop until I'm, my body forces me to stop. Are you completely straight edge now? Uh, I like to say I'm dry. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, no, I don't, I don't really feel like I abuse anything, but I, I, you know, I, I definitely don't drink. I haven't had, I had actually was in a church one time and I had uh, communion wine and every church I'd ever been to, it was grape juice. And this was a, this was a hefty little, little shot of wine that I took and I felt it run down my throat. And I thought, is this going to break me? I could see myself already at brunch. Having drinks. I mean, anytime I think about drinking, I think, you know what? I'm, it's been seven years. I could probably have a beer now and be fine. And then I'm already imagining myself drinking every day at every opportunity. So I, I can't do it. Your podcast is called We're Having a Good Time. Yes. Tell me what the podcast is. Well, 
the podcast, I mean, initially it started off because I was like, you know, I, I go to a place and do comedy and then I'm not back there for another year. I was like, let me have a way for people to stay in touch with me, to listen to me. So I was like, well, we were going to talk about some fun conspiracies, Bigfoot, Loch Ness, but you run out of those pretty quick. And then I was like, well, I'll just tell stories, stuff that I can't make funny on stage. And then I'm like, well, I ran out of those pretty quick. So we, we started to teeter. We were like, we were just, me and my wife were just sitting there. We were like, we don't even know what we're talking about. So that's when I decided to start this series on helping people become comics, right? And I think it's a nice insight to my story because it's all about from my perspective because I did all of these things from Nashville. I don't know, and, and I, I'm not trying to put myself on any kind of pedestal, but I don't know of any other comic who's gotten you know, three late nights, two in one year while living in a city like Nashville. Nashville's incredible and that's why I want to live here. But everybody that gets those things either lives in or has lived in New York or LA or Chicago. And I never have. So it feels good. So I'm trying to share my story with people and what I did while living in a city that's not considered one of the big three. And that's called, we're having a good time? That, that yes. same pod. So did you do all of this on that podcast? Is it morphing as you listen where it starts out and you're talking about you know ufos and then it goes to yes okay but season one is us figuring it out okay. season two is where we start with the with the new stuff season two is where we, okay we're getting started now yeah i mean season one starts off we just the you know first 20 episodes probably is us cutting on the on the microphones and just talking by by you know probably 20 we're, we're adding in bumpers we've got sounds we got sound effects a guy uh, named Joe Denham uh, wrote a, uh, a theme song for me. And uh, so now I feel like it's great. And my friend Matt Price wrote a bunch of bumpers for us. So we got, uh, I don't know, it's, I, th I think it's a great podcast. Even if you don't want to do comedy, for me, I, I just want people, like, like knowing where I came from, I just want people to live better lives. And I feel like people can get so caught up in mindsets where they're like, oh, you know, oh, I'll never be able to do this or I'll never be able to do this. I'm trying to give simple steps on how you can live a better life, uh, but through comedy, but also just be positive people. You know, it's like people can get so caught up with things going on in the world that they get real negative. And that's what my comedy is all about. That's why I like to say we're having a good time because I don't want to talk about anything serious. I'm just out here trying to, trying to make jokes. Like if you got this going on in your life or this going on, you come to my show for, for 30 minutes to an hour, you can just kick back and forget all those problems. You don't get political? I don't get political. I don't, I decided a long time ago that I didn't even want to make fun of people. If I'm making some, fun of someone in a story, it's that specific person. Uh, but it's like, you know, I used to make, I used to be a little overweight when I was drinking, right? And then I would make fat jokes. But now I'm like, you know what? If a fat person comes to my show, I don't want them to leave feeling bad about themselves. I want them to be happy too. So I don't write those jokes either. Where you're from in Alabama, is that more Auburn country or uh, Tide country? Well, I'm from uh, a town called Opelika, and, uh, which is right next to Auburn. So they're Auburn fans. Where I, where I, what I like to say, where I come from, you're either an Alabama fan or you went to college. <laughs> and then I say, but I didn't go to college, so roll tide. You know? and, uh, but yeah, my dad's a diehard Alabama fan. My, my mom's a diehard Auburn fan. And your wife's Canadian. My wife's Canadian. So that whole culture has got to be new to her. Oh, yeah. She could care less, but she's been down. I mean, gun culture, all that stuff is pretty new to her. Actually, we, once my mom uh, was living in a house, it was her that lived there. Two of my nephews and my sister and my brother-in-law all lived in one house. It wasn't a five-bedroom house. It was uncomfortable. And I was down there. We were hanging out, and uh, my wife was like, do you guys have any guns? Like, she's like, I don't see a lot of guns. And then guns started coming out of, I mean, like I grew up around guns. I'm comfortable with right. them. But I was like, I didn't know you guys had this many guns. Even my one nephew is bringing out all these swords. I was like, what's going on around here? Uh, some of your dates coming up, you have, uh, uh, you're at Zany's in Nashville on September 11th. You're doing, I mean, I can just read off some of these places. Um, Colorado, in uh, Greenwood Village, Colorado. You're doing Boulder. You're doing the Funny Bone Comedy Club in Albany. Bridgeport, Connecticut, at the Stress Factory, a couple nights in September, Nashville, Tempe, Arizona, West Palm Beach. Um, and you're doing, a, you're doing the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville again the 24th and the 29th in October. That's cool. Too. Opry's fun, huh? 
Yeah, I love the Opry. Some of those dates on the Opry, I don't know. I just was told that they sent me a bunch of dates, and then they were like, oh, some of them may not work. Oh, so you haven't got them confirmed yet. So I don't know. They, yeah. I thought they were, but then I was like, oh, maybe I got a little quick. I jumped the gun. But I've done the Opry six times, I think, now, and I love it. Yeah, it's I mean, fun, huh? Is it the first time you did it, were you able to actually separate the people in the audience, or was it kind of a blur? The first time, for sure, a blur. I mean, for sure. I was like, my, my dad was there and his buddy, and I'm like, well, it's funny, uh, like I always, there's metal detectors to get in, right? And me, my friend Aaron Weber from Alabama, my dad and his buddy, all from Alabama, we come up. I couldn't get it. I had to go back to my car, put my pocket knife back in the car. Uh, Aaron had to go back, put his pocket knife back in the car. My dad was being walked in by my agent at the time. And uh, he had to, my dad had a knife on him and his buddy had two knives. So we, they all, we all had to go back to our car to get rid of our knives. But the... Um, my dad's in the audience, and I'm like, man, I really want, and his friend's there, and they're staying with me. I'm like, if this doesn't go well, it's going to be an awkward night. And, and then I'm like, all my management was in town, agents. I mean, I had this big crew. I'm not used to having a crew. I'm getting more used to it now, but for so long, it was just me. And yeah, it was a total blur. I mean, they had me doing the Grand Old Opry Instagram Live, and I'm like, I don't even do it. I mean, I, I love social media, but I'm not great at it. I'm getting better. I write funny stuff, I have funny content, but I doing live things, I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, they haven't done that with me since. So how'd you, did they, uh, did, you, did you have a handheld mic or did you use the mic, the, the Opry stick mic? Uh, the Opry stick mic. Yeah. Well, I did, uh, I, you did I guess a handheld, mic? yeah, okay. handheld, yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, I can't do it without a mic. I mean, for me, it's like, uh, even just talking here and having a uh, the mic like this, I don't know what to do with my hands, you know? At least I hold the, uh, mic with one hand and then I wave with the other <laughs> and then I can get by. But I, I've always struggled with that. I used to uh, put my hand on the mic stand and then I was like, I was just massaging the mic stand and I was like, I had to get rid of that. And then I would put my hands in my pockets and then that looked weird. And then I didn't know what to do with my hand. The wave joke opened that up, changed everything. Do we have the wave joke, Mike? No. Okay. Uh, I, don't run the joke. Save the joke. Okay, great. Because I think a lot of people are going to come out and, and, and check you out. And it is a funny joke. So we'll just, we'll hold that one back. Yeah. Uh, well, th okay, great. And I got, uh, and at least with the hat, uh, we played that, but they didn't see it, right? Right. So that's great. But, yeah, I don't uh, want to kill too much. And you've already done this stuff too, right? Yeah, I have so much stuff on YouTube now that it's, uh, I have 20 minutes. I did a two, uh, two Tonight Shows and, and a Comedy Central thing and a Jimmy Kimmel. So I'm like, I got 20 minutes of my favorite jokes online. But the, uh, I, the, I got four shows in Colorado that I'm about to go do, yeah. uh, several, several cities. And those, those dates are all up to date. It's only the Opry ones that I'm a little, I'm not sure about. Yeah, the Opry, are get, and I love the Opry. I love playing the Opry. Like, what dates can you do when you send it off? They're like, okay, we'll let you know yeah. which ones of these that you said. And uh, it's, it's great. And Sally, who used to run the Opry, is a big fan of yours. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, and she was, she was like, Dusty's killing. He's awesome. You got to see him. That's how I first had heard about you. With, oh. Sa with Sally being like, well, he's, he's going to play the opera. He's awesome. Well, Sally's great. I was so sad. I was there on her last night, I think. And uh, yeah, so sad to see her go. I mean, because I've just really gotten to know her. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. But uh, Dan is uh, great too. And uh, so I think he took her place. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, but it's like the Opry for me, I mean, it's like when I went home that night, like I met John Conley. I've been a, I'm, I'm a huge John Conley fan. And I... He's singing Rose Colored Glasses. Yeah, Rose Col yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, he did. And then I missed, he did first the next time I was there and he did Backside of 30, which is the song that I really like. But I walk in and I hear him singing that and I was like, dang, I missed it. But uh, I mean, I just couldn't stop. I mean, I, I felt so good. I went home, I just listened to country music all night. I just couldn't. And I met, I've met Charlie Daniels up there, Charlie Pride, Trace Adkins. It's amazing. And everybody's so available backstage. Like I have made some good buds back there just in the backstage of the Opry. Um, Kix Brooks is one of the first guys that was like, it just came into the dressing room because generally you leave the door open unless you're doing something changing or you're really needing to remember and zone in on something, you keep the door open and everybody back there just goes in everybody's room if they want to. I remember Kix Brooks of Brooks and Dunn coming in my room and be like, Bobby, how you doing? And I was like, I had, it was before the first time I played the Opry and I was like, I'm a, you know, I'm a little nervous. And he was like, I played the opera 200 times. He's like, you're going to be great. And I just remember thinking, it's freaking Brooks and Dunn. Kicks Brooks from Brooks and Dunn hanging out in my room. 
it was really it was really great. And they put me in the, the Taylor Swift new artist room the first time. Oh yeah. You go in and, and it's got the big quotes. I guess it's just the new artist room, but Taylor's quote's the real big one above the door. Right. It's a real cool experience. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I've been in that room and now they put me in the, the, the funny the room. The funny one, yeah, time. with yeah. all the comedians from the opera, yeah. Yeah, it's so great. And it's like, you know, and I've, I've gotten, I did Nashville Squares, uh, which was uh, the reboot of Hollywood Squares, but filmed in LA. I thought it would be filmed in Nashville, but uh, I but, did that and like, uh, Dina Carter was on that. You know, I grew up listening to Strawberry Wine. Bob Saget was the host. All of these things that's been happening are, for me are very surreal. But I feel like that when you when you really work your way up, uh, you feel like that you belong. You know, even when you're around these famous people, you're like, yeah, but I worked for this. Right. I earned this. I didn't just get this happenstance. So you feel good. Well, I'm going to check out the podcast. Already a fan of your work. I, I didn't know about the podcast until now. I'm going to go learn how to be a freaking comedian. I think that's the goal. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, uh, well, I would love to have you anytime. I know that you said that you don't do clubs, but uh, any, I do. I'm not good enough to do clubs. Well, I do a monthly show. I do, I do theaters because, again, for the same reason we talked about big crowds, they can feed off each other. Right. I need the, I need the laughter of 2,000 people. Yes. As I, I don't have the balls to walk in and do 80 people. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's also my people too coming to a show. Right. And there's a big difference, as you know. That's true. Having to impress people that have no idea what they're walking into. All right, funny guy, make me laugh. Or people that are fans coming, I'm going to see Dusty Slade. There's a right. difference. Well, I'm still waiting on those. I got a few, I got a few <laughs> cities where I have that in. And uh, I, I had heard uh, at the beginning of, uh, you said you, you looked at John Chris followers and you, you judge all self-worth by, uh, yes, by far. I was like, I hope he didn't look at my Instagram. We, we, we judge <laughs> yeah. all, all we are are our followers. But, I, I uh, kid, I'm kidding. No, I, uh, I mean, I love the climb. And like I say, I, I know that you're probably not going to come, but open invitation, any of my shows, you're welcome. To Anytime. Watch, to yeah. watch. Okay. Yeah, yeah, to to watch, watch or, or to come up, either way. <laughs> to watch. All right, listen, we, we've done an hour I appreciate you coming over. I'm, Thank you. I'm Thank big, you for having me. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Big fan. I told you that, though, awkwardly when we were at that show together. I was like, hey, dude, you don't know who I am, but I'm a big fan. And you were like, all right, Urkel, leave me alone. And I was like, <laughs> all right, but just so you know, I'm a big fan. I see, and I was like, you're coming over to my house. And I had said nothing about the podcast. I was just like, you're coming over to my house. And you were like, all right, I'll, yeah. see, I'll see you then, guy. Well, I heard you had a pool, so I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. All right, Dusty Slay, episode 195, at Dusty Slay on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, follow them, uh, Google them, check out some clips and go see a live show if you can. And get Are those merch shirts the ones you sell at shows? Oh, yeah. I have, uh, I have NASCAR shirts, wolf shirts. I got hats. You got the whole... I got a flea market You're out dialed there. in. Oh, yeah. All right. I'm a uh, road guy. Episode 195 with Dusty Slay. Thanks, man. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.